This is the Bible Archives, and today we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 28, which is a pretty remarkable chapter that, at least for half of the chapter, is talked about quite frequently. But this comes off of a very intriguing tale of conflict between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And it's a conflict that began all the way back with their, you know, their birth. There's all that dissonance when they're born and they're twins. Uh, but now that's kind of come to a culminating moment where Jacob, the, the younger brother, you know, he's worked some trickery with great assistance from his mother, Rebecca. And he's inherited the covenantal blessing that began all the way back with Abraham. So chapter 28 picks up with a scene. And this scene, it's, it's complicated. It, it looks like it's connected more with Genesis 26 than Genesis 27. But it also seems to parlay off of the last chapter. And it's a specific moment where Isaac blesses and then sends Jacob. And so it's complicated to kind of piece together, does this fit here? Was this added? And and there's some background that's necessary to, to consider here. Sure. Um, because you have those two different sources, we've talked about that before with the documentary hypothesis, that there's different sources of authorship or schools of authorship in the book of Genesis. And Many scholars think that this is the P or priestly source as opposed to the Yahwist or J source, which would have been chapter 27. So it looks a little different. It's almost like a retelling of the story. Um, We've got, you'll notice, for example, Isaac, who had in chapter 27 been at death's door, now he seems perfectly healthy. You would think that he would be unhappy with Jacob because of what happened with the trickery, but here he responds to him as if nothing has happened, and he even kind of reiterates some blessings. But the main thing he charges them with is, you need to go and and get a wife from your mother's family. And one thing we can notice is how the author here tells us very explicitly who everyone is. So it's like you would think we would already know this, but he's very specific about um, go to your mother's brother, Laban, son of Bethuel, brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So the author is explaining to us, giving us an aside, like a kind of an addressing the reader, saying, remember, these are who these people are. Now, one thing I found was confusing, though, is, is Isaac and his age. Because according to to the text, he was 60 when the boys were born, Jacob and Esau. Esau was 40 when he married his Hittite wives. And Isaac is supposed to live to 180. So here in this chapter, it seems like he has plenty of life left. In chapter 27, he's like at death door and he can hardly see. And then, but then based on that, and then the way he's obviously not upset with Jacob for, for fooling him like he does, he goes ahead and gives him another blessing. It kind of makes it seem like whoever wrote this particular story, if that was the P source as opposed to the J source maybe, was either unaware of that previous story or just didn't really care. They're just reiterating it in a different way. Is that what you think might be happening? I, this, we, we have to be clear that this is not a unique issue, especially in a book like Genesis um, with so many sources, and, and here you might actually be seeing a combination of different sources, because even the e-source, uh, the Elois source, some of the normal techniques by by that authorship kind of comes in later in the chapter. Um, so a couple different ways that we can approach Genesis 28 is that, you know, one, it's added. It's, it's a different source that's 
put in line here where it doesn't completely work, but it continues the narrative. Okay. And so then you're left with, you know, issues like um, Isaac's age and Isaac's, you know, life situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps clear up why some of the language is used about re- re- reiterating family that we've already been told who they are. Um, another way that you can look at this is that, you know, maybe it still is um, of a different source, but it's meant to add components to the narrative. So, you know, Genesis 27 is, you know, one newspaper account of a story. And then 20, Gen- Genesis 28 is another account of the story that is not covering the same details and it's not trying to necessarily be coherent. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, like we're not told what Isaac's situation is here. Maybe he still is at death's door and it just doesn't say that. Um, so there's a couple different ways to approach it at the, at the end of that, the, the theme remains, and I do think that Genesis 28, if it was not concerned about continuity with the details of Genesis 27, mm-hmm. it is concerned with continuity with the overall content. Because what happens as a result of this is Jacob receives a specific charge now from Isaac that he also received from Re- Rebecca in the last chapter. Yeah. It's, it's now okay. put in the mouth of Isaac that you shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Okay, yeah, and it does mention Rebecca at the end of chapter 26. She says the same thing that she said when her twins were born. If this is the way my life is going to be, you know, why does it have to be that way? What good is my life if it's going to be that way? So maybe there's a connection there because she's the one who tells him to go to Laban first, and now Isaac is telling him. Maybe it's kind of like, you know, family discussion. I don't know. I do think it's important to just acknowledge that potential discontinuity You saw the same thing in uh, Genesis 6 and Genesis 7 when it's talking about the flood narrative, the the recreation story, as as we mentioned. Um, You you have a similar issue there where not all the details line up perfectly, but it's meant to carry the theme from a different angle. And that happens there. And I think it happens here. Okay. And so if we're looking at, you know, so what, what is the issue it starts to come to a head that this whole situation with inheriting the blessing and the covenant uh, seems to be about continuing the ancestral line in the pattern of, of Isaac and more, more specifically Abraham. Right. That Jacob from the beginning, it's been really important for him to do that. And we watch his brother, who was not the favored one coming out of the womb, mm-hmm. fail to do that. Um, and so all of these details especially in the last in the last chapter it focuses a ton on Jacob's deception and even Rebecca's deception um, but all of that seems to be about as we get here in this chapter it seems to be about making sure that Jacob was not going to make the same mistake okay, and so the yeah. the covenant can continue because look he's been forced to flee mm-hmm. um, now if we want to if we want to read this more narratively you get this charge from uh, Rebecca about the Canaanite women and now from Isaac. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to have to speculate that Jacob is in a position where he could make the same mistake. You know, like, has he been hanging out with, you know, some Canaanite crowds? Right. Or, yeah. you know, what, what would cause his parents to intervene in, in such a dramatic fashion? Um, and you have to remember Jacob is in the land of the Canaanites right now. Mm hmm. Um, and that's all because Abraham intentionally 
created inhabitants, inhabitants there after Sarah's, uh, Sarah's uh, burial, right? So it feels a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, oh, you know, yeah. parental intervention, <laughs> yeah, young indeed. love. You know, there was this Canaanite <laughs> woman close by and they said, you know what? We have to make it so that you can't stay here. Yeah. Um, and it's also worth pointing out, like you had brought up that, um, you know, Isaac doesn't seem perturbed by what Jacob has done. And a way that we can smooth that one over is that, you know, we mentioned was Isaac in on it the whole time, oh, yeah. you know, so mm-hmm. that's something to consider, uh, to consider as well. Either way, Esau married Hittites. He screws up the covenant. Jacob's charged not to do that with Canaanites. Yep. And this also begins Israel's dislocation from the Canaanite people. Ah, yes. And that's going to carry out throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Canaanites don't exist anymore and a Canaanite woman approaches Jesus and it's full of this baggage that goes all the way back to here. Um, so that's yeah. that's something to, to make sure that we're aware of as well. Um, so... With blessing in hand, Jacob is is going to be sent now to Rebecca's family, which is also Abraham's ancestral tribe, and and it seems really clear that the whole deception and Rebecca's role was just to get Jacob to flee, so he would go back to her home and marry in the family, unlike unlike Esau. Um, okay, yeah, he needs to leave, and he's kind of doing the hero journey here, where he leaves home, he's got something he's got to go and do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that makes stealing the blessing really important because th- there had to be this animosity that's going to force Jacob where he, he can't stay there. Right. Because if he does stay there, is he going to end up like Esau and get hitched to some Canaanites? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I think I think also here the, the charge by Isaac also includes language really similar to Genesis 11 about Padan Aran. So... Um, and this is also the same language used in Genesis 24 when, you know, Abraham's sure. most trusted servant sent to the house of Bethuel um, so as to not get Isaac a spouse from the Canaanites. So this this narrative firmly places Jacob's story in the pattern of the previous patriarchs, both both Abraham and Isaac. And that might be why the language is uh, reiterated with that such makes detail. That sense. Yeah, is, it's like it puts him right in there. Then. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we want to see you to see here. Jacob is just like Isaac, who is just like Abraham, yep. and it's all coming together. Yeah. So so those those are details that are, are important to pay attention to, just as much as Isaac's age, the discrepancies in all, in all of that. Um, then in verse 3 and 4, there there is an interesting moment I wanted to bring up here. Um, a more general blessing is given. Yeah. And and this one is in the pattern of the covenant based on Genesis 12, which you see this come up when, when the patriarchal hand is changing. And so this kind of hints to us, uh, Jacob's taken over now. This is oh, okay. Jacob's narrative mm-hmm. is starting. And you get that be fruitful and multiply language yeah. mm-hmm. and then take possession of the land. Um so now that's that's also emphasizing, see, Jacob's doing this thing, started with Abraham, was passed on to Isaac. Um, and Isaac specifically says, the land where you now live that God gave Abraham, which hints that the the promises have begun to happen a little bit. Yeah. It and says, so, yeah, he lives as an alien, but... 
that can't continue. This needs to be mm-hmm. our land. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's all just setting up the future of, of the story. And you're going to continue to see that play out in Genesis. And then, you know, honestly, it continues to play out through most of Israel's history. Sure. But we're not done with Esau. Then you, you get verse six starts a little uh, side narrative about um, about Esau, and I want to I, I I really want to try to be fair to Esau because he doesn't get a lot of credibility, um, and despite Esau's marital woes, he is still portrayed as a noble character and and possibly a better character than Jacob. So as we watch the story unfold, we're going to see Jacob. He's going to continue to play this game he's been playing, and uh, that's going to come back to disrupt him quite a bit. You know, he's self-serving, he's manipulative, and a a key word that's going to come up here soon, he prioritizes his own Mm self-preservation. Esau, on the other hand, is going to be such a character that he's eventually given lavish praise. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Oh yeah, Jacob says that yeah. to him. So so mm-hmm. Esau's sure. not made out to be this terrible ruined creature. Uh he's the older brother, the one that stays home, cares for his family while the younger brother goes off with the inheritance and you know hmm. offers stability. That Esau, sounds like a familiar story. Yeah, it and and I really think that's important to see here. Yeah. Yeah. Esau's going to offer stability that Jacob doesn't. You know, the the better leader of Israel is not clear. Mm-hmm. In fact, it often looks like Esau would have been a better choice. You know, that kind of happens with Jacob and Leo. We'll have to get into that later, mm-hmm. next chapter. Um, Esau, in the end, um, also seems to be content with his lot, mm-hmm. which is not something that Jacob does. So uh, I think it's important to point that out. But the covenant's continuation is not dependent on the character of people. It is dependent on the faithfulness of God. And so you know, as we read it, we might be able to go like, Esau's the better candidate here. Mm-hmm. And I think the Hebrew Bible wants to be intentional with saying the candidate is not the most important thing. So Jacob, though screwed up, that's the one who has inherited this blessing. And and you know what? God will see to it. It's not going to be up to Jacob. Yeah. I mean, so then it's kind of like an archetypal sort of figure where Jacob representing Israel Israel knows that they have hardly by any means kept up their end of the deal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And despite of the fact that things that they have done as a nation, God has been faithful to that covenant. Yeah. And so then Jacob is also that particular character, meaning look at how our ancestors are. We ourselves have been like this, but God has continued to be faithful to us. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the same reason why they use the phrase, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob weren't weren't all 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 that great Mm -hmm. um so i think that's all important um but that's where we can go esau is not earning this jacob's not earning this right but we still have the problem of marriage and one of the things that does need to happen is it needs to stay within that that ancestral tradition and esau just cannot seem to figure this out so this is really fascinating for me i i laugh a little bit as i read this because Esau watches, you know, I don't know if Esau was there watching, it doesn't say that, but I'm, I'm pretending that Esau watches the younger he, son. He's heard of it anyway. Yeah. yeah. He, he receives the father's blessing. He gets everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he's still trying to do well. So he overhears that you shouldn't marry Canaanites, which he did. So he, he's going to make this right. You know, 
He's going to fix this. He's going to show his father that he can marry correctly too. (laughs) So you're supposed to avoid the Canaanites and it should be within Abraham's family. Oh, there's Ishmael. Another rejected son, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Ishmael is in Abraham's family. So Esau goes and marries Ishmael. Yeah. And he keeps his other wives at the same time. Like this is the art in missing the point. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I will point this out. This isn't, in my opinion, about polygamy, by the way, you know. Uh, no, that was the common practice among many it, yeah. cultures. Well, back and, then. and that case can be made, right? You right, can sure. go like, see what Esau's problem is polygamy. It, mm-hmm. It's not though. It's, it's no. who he marries is the problem here. Um, right. I mean, and Jacob marries multiple wives. Too, it's important so. <laughs> because the polygamy thing is going to be supported here in a little bit. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, throughout a lot of the polygamy that happens early on in the Hebrew Bible, there's no confrontation. Right. That doesn't happen until way later. So right. just be careful using this as an anti-polygamy thing. That's not necessarily what it's meant to be. Yes. Um, well, let us point out that these are all more or less consenting adults. Just uh, saying. Yeah. And, and... that's important to bring up. But if we only make this about polygamy, we might miss the real problem here is the covenantal inheritance. Yes. We have to contain this within a certain line of people. So that's the opening to Genesis 28. That's kind of the part that doesn't see as much uh, playtime. Yeah. Um, Verse 10, the narrative shifts back to Jacob and this is where the Jacob cycle really takes off. You know, we get this cataclysmic moment where Jacob's the primary character um, and, and has his first covenantal interaction as the patriarch with the God of his ancestors. So this is a pivotal moment. We're, we're done with the Isaac cycle now, even though it was short and often over uh, overrided by Rebecca and Jacob. Um, but now Jacob's the main character. Um, and, and it's important to see, so far Jacob has been a son. Yeah. Now that he has left... And, you know, yes. the deception is complete. He's, he starts mimicking the pattern of Abraham a lot. So God's going to communicate directly with Jacob. This hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen through a dream. Um, he's somewhere in the vicinity of Beersheba and Haran, which places him approximately uh, in, in spaces that Abraham was around. So right. it's fitting him there. But also, being in the vicinity of Beersheba and Haran also places him approximately in the middle of nowhere. Yep. So these are not major uh, centers that had been established at this time. And if you remember Abraham's arc, you know, he goes from the epicenter of civilization to the, you know, sort of nomadic wandering in the Levant. Jacob is kind of retracing that. Not, Not exactly, but he's kind of retracing that. Just as Abraham's servant did when he went to go find a spouse for Isaac. Mm -hmm. Very Um, similar story. So we're seeing that same like geographical movement. Yeah. And that's important. Um, But the literary key here, I think, as as I read it, is that Jacob is not in any heightened urban center. And it picks up in verse 11 where it says, he came to a certain place. And this should give us pause uh, because most of the travel narratives surround the location of specific places with names, and those names are always important. They tell us something about the space. And we don't get that here. We we kind of know the direction that it's going, but he comes to a certain place, and that should be a clue uh, that something unusual is going on. Yeah. He, he stops at a certain place um, for the night. 
Now, this is going to get interesting because of what happens in this certain place. Yes, it does. Um, in fact, I think one of the translations I saw said he stops in a desolate place. So I forget what translation that is, but I think that is good because it reiterates a little bit more mm -hmm. that this is, in fact, a place where there's nothing and nobody. And so it's kind of interesting because what people or what people hear the story, um, what Jacob does is it says he takes a stone and he puts it under his head. And somehow we always picture him using that stone as a pillow. And you're like, well, why would you do that? You could just roll up your coat and whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think really what Jacob is doing here has a lot more to do with some of the cultic practices of the time. He's using that stone and putting it under his head, under his ear, in order to hear what the land has to tell him, or perhaps to invoke the dream. So he doesn't just fall asleep and randomly have a dream. This dream is a dream that he... It's induced. It's induced. Mm -hmm. He's hoping to induce a dream by putting that stone under his pillow. And, and you know, so we're about to get a dream, and it's going to have divine communication in it. And uh, this pattern, this would be very familiar. So we read this and we go like, oh, that's really weird. Mm -hmm. Timings seems coincidental. But this is all just part of a pattern that I think ancient readers would be like, oh, so that's kind of what's happening here. Sure. But similar to the flood story, there's kind of a retcon going on here where it all sounds the same, but there's a couple things different. And that's where the meaning lies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, traveling to a cultic site or, or even a, more specifically a temple. Right. That would usually be in the esteemed location of a regional deity. Absolutely. You would do that to go hear an oracle from them. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and, and I think this, usually this would be done in tense situations, right? You know, such as running from your life from your brother sure. after you stole a couple of until inheritance. You got to marry people from a specific tribe in order to fulfill your ancestral role, right? So, you know, going to, going to do this. Uh, in, in a situation such as Jacob's, this would all be like, ah, of course. Um, now, hmm. typically, from what I understand, you would sleep in a temple with, you know, stones, with incense or mm -hmm. other things that uh, elicit smoke that yes. might help. Things that might help to elicit certain states sure. of mind, perhaps. Uh, and that would all usually be done in a temple. Yeah, in a temple, probably in an urban center in where an urban there are priests center. and where there are shrines. And, and, and yeah. you would even travel to, if there was a specific deity you wouldn't yep. adhere to, you'd go to that place, right. you know? And that way the gods could speak to you. And so I think it's interesting here to point out some of this sounds right. Jacob's running from his life. Mm -hmm. There's a stone. Yeah. He's going to have a dream. But there's also parts that are missing, specifically that he's in a certain place or a desolate place, yeah. middle of nowhere, not a temple. And he places the rock under his head and we're missing all of these other special objects, special places and other intervening bodies that it's, are going to help to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Except that they do occur. Except they just occur in the dream. Right. And yeah, you're yeah. right, right, right. And what's interesting about it, and I and again I, I sometimes blame the translators here because often you will see this translated as ladder. Jacob has a dream and in it he sees everybody knows the stairway to heaven or the ladder to heaven where there's angels going up and down. You know, well it's definitely a stairway. And the reason why you mm. need to see that is because in the ancient Near Eastern mind, you hear stairway and you're going to think of a certain kind of temple site, what they call the ziggurat. And it's like a big giant 
pyramid-shaped um, structure that sort of looked like a wedding cake with tiers, and there would be four staircases on either side, all going up to the top, when at the top is always a temple, and that mm. is the place where the gods and the humans meet. So that's what he does. He dreams of the temple that he is, you know, didn't go to, and mm-hmm. in order to do that, then here he is. And so we see that when we see this kind of staircase. Yeah, and think like Mayan yeah. cultic site, mm-hmm. it, but... Uh, you can also like look up renderings of a ziggurat. This is big in Babylon. You know, but the hanging is, gardens were all built on. This is all super important because we've been connecting Jacob to Isaac and Abraham, all yeah. going back to Genesis 11. Well, what else was a part of that narrative was a ziggurat, you know, the Tower of Babel. Yeah, that narrative is kind of being referenced here too. And that connection's important. It definitely is because the name Babel can mean gate of the gods. And when Jacob wakes up, he says, surely God is in this place and this is the gate to heaven. So he even uses that same language Mm -hmm. that's connected to that name. Now, uh, another commentary that happens a lot here is people go dreams. See, dreams are important. And so when I have a dream, that's God speaking to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've got to be careful with that. Uh, I think that can be misused really easily. And the dream itself is not the point. That would have been just normal uh, parlance of uh, for the course, right? Right. And the idea of dreaming, obviously, is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so J- Jacob has one of these cultically induced dreams, but right. without some of the cultic fluff, which tells us something about this God, which is going to come up at the, at the end of the dream. Um but it's it's not necessarily going, and so you, you, dear reader, anytime you have a dream, you are being given divine communication. We have to be careful with that. What's interesting is that within a dream um, psychology is there's there's a couple different approaches to this. We, we And this is more for people who are hearing others talk about how their dream was, uh, you know, induced to be divine communication. Right. Um, this very Freudian. Uh, Freud was one of the first people to offer any kind of psychoanalytics on dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he goes on to say that, you know, your consciousness is trying to speak to you. And this is the whole uh, id, ego, superego. Sure. Not sure if everybody's familiar with that. But your consciousness is trying to speak to you. And so all these different things in your dream are, are metaphors or descriptors for something. And you have to figure that out. And so psychologists spend a lot of time, you know, hearing someone's dream and then uh, telling them, okay, this is what it meant. We tend to just be Freudian with our dreams, just with religious language, that God was the one giving our consciousness these things to think about, and therefore we're supposed to do this thing. Um, and the problem is those all need interpreted. Mm-hmm. And even Freud is is quoted, uh, a, a famous <laughs> quote of, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so we have to be really careful with that. I've seen dream uh, psychoanalytics be used in religious settings that, uh, at least overtly to me, were just a way to confirm a particular bias. And if we can justify it with the credibility of a dream uh, and God spoke to me, then we can go ahead and do it. Um, So you have to be aware of that. That perspective on dreams continued pretty heavily until recently. And uh, there was a Harvard uh, theory put out that um, what's happening in dreams is, is just the random parts of your consciousness 
uh, coming to light within a particular brain state. Mm-hmm. And so, th- and their push was saying, your dreams don't mean anything. They're just experiences you've had, uh, uh, combining themselves in particular ways to create these, these, uh, states within your brain. Right. And, and so I just want to offer that because I know it's a huge conversation in, within some, um, some insular religious groups right. for how to use dreams. Sure. So just know that there's a bunch of different thoughts on that. Um, but Jacob has a dream and it is one of those very specific dreams. You know, you're, there's the stairway where the top reaches of the heavens, right? There's the, the ziggurat. Mm-hmm. I also find the angels or what in Hebrew, just very literally messengers. Mm-hmm. Right. They're ascending and descending, we're told. And um, this is this is strange because every time I've heard people talk about this, they always talk about the angels coming down. But it starts by telling us that they first go up the staircase, which would mean that their original location, their starting location was on the earth. That's interesting. I, I, I did don't, not ever think about that. I think that detail is important. Absolutely, it and is. And that's also going to play into hmm. what Jacob notices after the dream. Um, and, you know, like you said, we usually talk about Jacob's ladder. Pretty pretty sure there's a song. Um, yeah. Probably song doesn't sound as cool if you say Jacob's Stairway. But, well, you have the Stairway to Heaven song. Which is a better song. <laughs> right. um, and, and and you have these angelic wing creatures coming down, but they're actually, they start by ascending the, the stairs. And if the messengers of the divine are going up first, that means they started here. So that's an important detail. Um, and then, then this is where it starts getting kind of Elois sourced or e yes, source, mm-hmm. right? Adonai stands beside Jacob in the dream. You know, we've kind of seen similar language used about Abraham. Well, the Elois so loved far. dreams. Mm-hmm. That was their way of God communicating. Yeah. So yeah, you, that seems to be a big, and again, it places Jacob right. within the pattern of Abraham. Um, and then, I don't think people always focus on the language of the dream here, but it's important to notice. Um, we get a divine introduction, and that now connects Jacob to Abraham, too. Um, and it includes the promises, land, multiplication, and then the command that the world will be blessed. And it's important to point out that despite Jacob's character, this dream is adamant that the covenant is going to happen. Again, because it's based on God, not on the efficacy of people. It's also important for the authors, I think, to imply that Jacob is simply, you know, the intergenerational conduit to continue what's already been happening. You know, people have died, but the covenant has continued and it will continue even after Jacob. So I kind of see all those things going on in the dream speech. Mm-hmm. And then um, verse 15 adds another element that we have kind of seen, but it seems particularly important uh, here for Jacob. Know that I am with you and will keep you where you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave until I have done what is promised. On one hand, this is great storytelling. I think. Yeah. Because where is Jacob? The, the middle, middle of nowhere. nowhere. Right. <laughs> Running for his life. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you could say he's kind of in exile. 
Yes, he is. And there's vast uncertainty, but he's reminded Adonai is with him. Like, so one thing we're seeing, Jacob, this is not dependent on you. But, but that, the line, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is where I start going, who exactly is God talking to here? Is this about Jacob or is Jacob actually standing in for someone else? Because if you are the later descendants of Israel, which is probably the first time this narrative was written down. Yeah. If you're the descendants of Israel, which is literally Jacob, you're reading Genesis. It's after the Babylonian exile. Right. And you've inherited a story of utter failure, right? Even the glorious King David, he was a mess. And then Assyria came and then Babylon and your people have failed consistently. And in some ways we can read this as you're still in the middle of nowhere with vast uncertainty, running for your life in the pangs of disappointment. And I imagine just like Jacob, they'd be wondering, is this it? Yeah, for sure. And so this line, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You know, is this dream of Jacob's actually the dream of the whole people of Israel? Which which then leads to the question, is this still a message that, that needs to resonate? You know, we haven't arrived. We're still wandering. But the divine promise is that, yes, it isn't finished, but we're going to see this through. So I think that's really important as we're seeing Jacob be this archetypal figure. Yeah. You know, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Yes. Who eventually, be, I mean, it's still a a nation state title we use and to see Jacob slash Israel and Israel, the larger group of people as the same thing is going to be really important going forward. But then Jacob wakes up from the dream. So this is verse 16 and it's, uh, this is one of my favorite like lines, like quoted lines of a person, what he says when he wakes up, uh, when he wakes up, surely Adonai is in this place and I did not know it. Yeah. And so then this is where, go back to the beginning of the setting. He says this place, what place? And remember, it's a certain place or a desolate place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the place between, I like to call it. A, I like that, a liminal space. Mm-hmm. A, a place of apparent mm-hmm. absence and failure and uncertainty a place between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise that just got brought up. And apparently uh, Jacob becomes aware that Adonai is there too, whether or not we're aware of it, you know, and he says, mm-hmm. he's been, been here the whole time and I just wasn't aware of it. And, and this brings up, you know, if we wanted to start getting into more popular theology, you know, where do you go to find God? And I think one of the things that this narrative is pushing, you know, temples, cultic rituals, special places, you know, maybe, but also in the places we least expect. And and I think this story is meant to kind of enliven that imagination of the Jewish people, that this God is active, intervening in, in the narrative here, yeah. and this God is present or imminent. Um, and, and there's a further note here on, on the dichotomy of, of dualism and, and religious thinking. You know, when we think about holy spaces, we usually think about architecture. Gotcha. Yes, you know, I see the what you're saying. Things, the, the, mm-hmm. the best way we can conceive to um, discuss the divine presence is something that human hands have constructed. Mm-hmm. And this kind of 
calls into question, you know, that, well, God's also in, in the ordinary, in the mundane. Um, or you think about Moses and holy ground as the ground on which we pay attention. Right. You know, God doesn't show up. We do. How many burning bushes were there burning before he right. saw it? There, there's a quote by Gandhi I love that it isn't sacred and secular, but it's sacred in all the places we fail to see as sacred. Yeah. And that becomes important here. This is also kind of detached from what eventually happens to Israel. And the book of Deuteronomy moves Israel toward a centralization effect, okay. which starts propping up. No, there are specific holy spaces. Right. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to do mm-hmm. certain things. And I think n- neither one of those are wrong. Um, and I think there's good balance to be found there. Yeah, I agree. I think that sometimes we need a, a space to go into in order to set our mind because we're trained that way. You know, your brain sure. is sort of Pavlovian. So you go into a space going, this is now I'm in holy space. So this is how I'm going to interact with God. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, obviously it's not the only place that you but can I, do that. I, I like that contained within the narrative. And Lawrence Kushner has a book um, about this that's based on that quote, uh, I think it's just titled The Lord Was in This Place and I I Was Not Aware of It, uh-huh. um, something along those lines. But it's important to see, like, uh, in the Jewish imagination, this is part of it. Sure. You know, do we pay attention to the mysterious wonder, the, the beauty of just a regular moment? Um, and even within that, in, in the case of this dream, do we pay attention to this teleological goal that is present in even the most dire of circumstances? Well, they kind of had to. They lost their temple. What are they going to do to keep their identity? And I think one of the unique things about the Jewish people is the way they managed to keep their identity, even when they were in exile, even when they lived in foreign places Mm -hmm. as aliens. Somehow, all through history, they managed to keep hold of who they are, and probably because of this mindset. Yeah. And and honestly, that's why they began writing these stories down. Absolutely. Too. This is kind of like their space. Instead of Mm -hmm. a space, it's like they have their writing. Yeah, I like that. The, The... the narrative is the Holy space. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, but then uh, another, another component to Jacob's response is he is afraid. He's, and it says he's awestruck. Yeah. And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than, than the gate in the house of, of he- gate of heaven in the house of God. Yeah. Um, and that, okay. So gate of heaven, we already brought that up. Right. The Babel of Heaven mm-hmm. uh, and the House of God. It's what they called their temple. Yes, they did. So that's making a strong case that this uh, this space is at, at least. What's the? How do you make temple into an adjective? Templeistic. I guess so. I don't know. But it, it well, has ritualistic, cultic, I suppose you could say. But this this ordinary space, but yeah, you've uh, taken... and specifically the communication within it and the narrative within it is like a temple. Mm-hmm. You know, house of God is very intentional there. So, um, then verse eighteen, <clears throat> Jacob wakes up, he gets up, and he uses the stone as a pillar. Um, and this is technically called a standing stone and standing stones were used to mark particular events. And, um, they were a witness to moments like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and later standing stones are used to witness to the promises of, uh, Adonai because they demarcate the, the territory of Israel. Um, so standing stones 
uh, have a really important emphasis in in the Hebrew tradition, but then also um, in I think it's First Peter. First Peter calls you know the body um, that you are standing stones. Oh, okay. And that's a kind of a reference to that's what interesting function that the standing stone has mm-hmm. here, but then also in in Jewish tradition, right? Um, and but I think it's important this idea of having a witness to that awareness. You know, our stones, the the things that. Uh, happen in these ordinary spaces are actually altars if we're willing to pay attention. Right? Exactly. So, so even there are a, altars everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. a stone can can do that, and and just generally stones become a really important artifact within the Israelite tradition, and they were in most cultures. I was going to say, I'm thinking of the stele where they would have the writings of mm-hmm. a particular monarch or a city, and you know, obviously Europe itself is just covered with standing stones because they were definitely considered something that people saw as a place to mark a, a sacred space or mm-hmm. demarcate some kind of sacred space. And, and I think, you know, if we look at this as an ideological narrative, um, it's important for the 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 author is here to go and we don't use our stones like other people use stones. Exactly. You know, we're different, you know. So <laughs> you kind of notice them throwing that stuff in there as well. Sure. Um, but even Jacob here here in a little bit, he's going to come back through this territory and, you know, he just like a, at least my dad always did this. Like, <laughs> so guys, we're going to stop. We're going to talk. I did this thing. Yeah. And I know you guys are bored right now, but <laughs> right. Uh, I want to tell you all about it. That's my old house, and this is where I used yeah. to play. And yeah, for my dad, my it was always and... I tiled that building. Yep. <laughs> dad, I don't, I don't care. Right. Um, but that's also it's important because the standing stones are so integral to Israel's memory, and you know they marked a space and a moment, and that explains the importance of you know Bethel, Beth. L house of God. Right. Um, and it's not in my mind about the specific location, but it's about what happened in the location, the moments and the memory of it. And this idea of marking history and, uh, keeping that alive intergenerationally, the Hebrew people understood really well. Um, in fact, probably the only reason that we still know, anything about this stuff is because they kept memories alive. Absolutely. Um, and so we have to ask questions about how we do that. And if I was to be critical of modern Christianity um, at all, it's that we have um, elevated the new and have not taken the time to create standing stones with our spaces, with our stories, with our memories. Um, and, and I know that's something, so at the church we're at right now, the farmhouse, we try to do that well. Um, even even the, the land on which we are, we, we try to honor of its memory and its history Absolutely, and, yeah. and all that. And, and I think we, we can make... ancestors, so to speak. Right, here. We can mm-hmm. make a case for that was really important within yeah. the biblical narrative, and it should be, but I see all of these kind of new churches prop up and, you know, blank slate, here we go. It's like, but what are you connected to? How can you do it without a root? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the community. The community has those memories. And these stories are how we tell who we are and remember those things, just like these stories. Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason they told them. Yep. And we need to do that as well. we got to figure out what our stories are sometimes, but then we need to tell them. Yeah. Just in case, though, we were starting to feel good about Jacob. Yep. Uh, we uh, We see this ending part. 
kind of kind of starts in uh, verse 20 <laughs> yeah. where Jacob makes a vow. Up until now, Jacob's been very passive, right? He's just kind of going with it. He's the son of Isaac, um, or he's, you know, the puppet of Rebecca. He's in a big state of uncertainty for sure. Sure. He doesn't really know. He's a young guy too. So, you know. But in encountering, you know, the, the God of the common, we might say, he also encounters himself. And I just want to uh, emphasize, as you read this vow, it'd be easy to go, oh, wow, what a powerful vow. Notice the language of the vow. It says, if God will keep me in this journey, give me bread and clothing and bring me to my ancestor's house in peace, then... <laughs> Adam and I will be my God. And, sure, you know, I'll go along with it. <laughs> I'll, I'll even tie the little bit. Sure. You know? Um, and it's it's a it's a conditional vow. Is this a prosperity gospel kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the but the if then is important. It doesn't say Adonai is my God, and you know, God has promised that God will keep me in this journey and give me bread and clothing and all of that. It says if that happens, then Adonai will be my God, which implies Adonai is not his God yet. Um, hmm. and just as we've seen so far, and we're going to continue to see for a while here, remember his name's still Jacob, the deceiving, manipulating player of the game of self-preservation is still playing here. And this time with the covenant and with the God of his ancestors. So he's, he's willing to go like, uh, this God that just showed up. That was really cool. Awesome story. Stairway was cool. Um, Oh, you might be helpful. To, you know, make my life easier. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use you too. That's all going to come to a head in Genesis 32. And that's when um, uh, Jacob's name will change. But until then, he's still Jacob. He's still the deceiver. He's still searching primarily for self-preservation, which means that the covenant is not important to him. Um, in fact, you could say that for Jacob, the covenant is just an opportunity for him. Yeah, so far that's the way it's been. So what happens next then is as we get into Genesis 29, we start seeing the game kind of unravel. Mm -hmm. And it's going to unravel to a point where uh, Jacob is uh, beset with one of the most uh, heightened conflicts in the biblical tradition. Um, and and that, that will kind of move us to where Jacob's narrative begins to really change in Genesis 32. So that's a bunch of stuff on the covenant and some biblical issues with discontinuity. Um, and hopefully we revealed some, some more complexity to Esau. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this dream, it's talked about a lot. And hopefully that gives a lot more clarity. 